From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Gary Zeiger, a brutal serial killer, stalked the streets of Anchorage in the early 1970s. We'll never know how many people Zeiger killed, but eventually the psychopath made a fatal mistake. During the period when serial killer Robert Hansen terrorized Anchorage and South Central Alaska, another brutal murderer roamed the same area. While Hansen selected and hunted his prey, Gary Zeiger used women and men for his satisfaction and then simply discarded them. Zeiger seemed unwilling or unable to control himself and was sure to self-destruct. When two hikers discovered the body of Celia Beth Van Zanten at McHugh Creek State Park south of Anchorage, they knew she had suffered a horrible death. Someone had gagged her and tied her hands behind her back with speaker wire. Her body was naked below the waist. The pathologist later determined Beth had been raped and her chest slashed with a knife. She was still alive when she was either thrown or fell into a ravine. She apparently tried to climb out of the steep-walled crevice, but with her hands tied behind her back, she had no way to pull herself up the cliff, and she repeatedly fell until she froze to death in the frigid December weather. Investigators discovered tire tracks turning lazy circles in the parking lot of the campground, and they deduced Beth escaped her attacker ran down the steep slope, and probably fell into the ravine. Her abductor circled the parking lot, waiting for her to reappear. But when she never did, he finally left. Beth disappeared on December 23, 1971, while walking from her house to a local convenience store. What happened during her short walk down the street? Soon after hikers discovered Beth Van Zanten's body on Christmas Day, 18-year-old Sandra Patterson, the daughter of an Alaska state trooper, came forward to report her abduction on December 19th. Sandra worked as a prostitute to support her heroin addiction. She was working in the parking lot of the Nevada Club in Anchorage when a man pointed a gun at her and told her he would kill her if she didn't do what he wanted. She described her attacker as a slender man in his mid-twenties wearing horn-rimmed glasses. The man drove Sandra to a motel on the Kenai Peninsula, nearly 100 miles south of Anchorage, and raped her. On the drive back to Anchorage, he threatened to kill her if she reported him to the police. Sandra complied with his demands to remain silent until she heard about Beth Van Zanten's murder. And then she knew she had to come forward and tell authorities about her abduction. Police asked Sandra to study a book of photos of known sex offenders to see if she could pick out 
the man who had kidnapped and raped her. She immediately identified her attacker as Robert Hansen. Hansen's photo was in the book because he was awaiting trial for the attempted kidnapping of a young Anchorage woman. Hansen was initially charged with kidnapping and raping Sandra Patterson, but prosecutors considered Patterson an unreliable witness, and the charges were eventually dropped. Meanwhile, nothing tied Hansen to the murder and abduction of Beth Van Zanten, and to this day, authorities remain unsure whether Beth was murdered by Hansen, by someone she knew, or by another brutal killer named Gary Zeiger. Police knew about Gary Zeiger. In 1970, a young man's girlfriend urged him to tell Anchorage police detectives what he had witnessed. The man confessed he had been riding in Zeiger's truck six months earlier when Zeiger picked up a male hitchhiker. Zeiger asked to borrow the young man's gun and then drove to a secluded area, placed the barrel of the weapon against the hitchhiker's head, and forced the hitchhiker to perform oral sex on him. Zeiger then shot the hitchhiker and threw his body into a pit at the Anchorage landfill. Investigators used a metal detector at the dump to find the empty rounds from a 9mm pistol. Their next step was to see if they could match the markings on the cartridges to the barrel of the young man's gun and substantiate his story. An officer drove to the man's apartment to collect the weapon, but while he waited for the warrant to arrive, Zeiger appeared at the home, went inside, and then left a short while later. Officers were never able to locate the pistol in question, and with little evidence and only the eyewitness testimony of one individual, prosecutors declined to press charges against Zeiger. Two months after the discovery of Beth Van Zanten's body, 18-year-old Shirley Ann Jones was seen leaving an Anchorage nightclub with a man. The next morning, her body was found in a truck yard on the east side of Anchorage. She had been severely beaten and raped. She was alive and unconscious when found, but she died a short time later. In August 1971, Zingra, nicknamed Zizi, Mason, decided to hitchhike from her home to an auto body repair shop to pick up her car. When she didn't show up for work the next day, her boss contacted her family, and when her parents called the repair shop, they learned Zizi had never retrieved her car. Six days later, children playing in a gravel pit near the intersection of Sand Lake Road and Diamond Boulevard found the body of Zizi Mason hidden under a tree. She was naked below the waist. According to the medical examiner, Zizi's face had been brutally beaten, and she had suffered numerous stab wounds. At the gravel pit, detectives found blood and drag marks leading from a set of tire tracks to Zizi's body, suggesting she had been killed elsewhere and dumped at the pit. The unusual tire tracks gave investigators their first lead in the case. The tracks were made by the heavy tread of tires used to gain traction in mud, snow, or soft sand. But what made the tracks unusual was it appeared three of the four tires had been mounted backward. 
A gravel truck driver called the police and reported seeing a young woman hitchhiker who matched the description of Zizi Mason climb into a pickup truck with two men. The driver said he saw the same truck later parked at the back of the gravel pit where Zizi's body was found. The second time the driver saw the vehicle, only a man and woman were in the truck, and they appeared to be kissing. Ralph Kiner called the police to tell them he was riding with Gary Zeiger the afternoon Zizi disappeared. Kiner said Zeiger picked up a young woman hitchhiker and then dropped off Kiner near an Anchorage fire station. Kiner reported Zeiger had a large knife on the dashboard of his truck. Gary Zeiger's boss at Arctic Pipelines, Inc., said another employee reported seeing Zeiger washing his pickup at Campbell Creek on the day of Zizi's murder. Police found the unusual tracks near Campbell Creek and felt they were making progress in the investigation. Since the sandpit where the children found Zizi's body was outside the Anchorage city limits, both the Alaska State Troopers and the Anchorage Police Department investigated the murder. Troopers obtained a search warrant for Zeiger's truck and noted three of the wheels were indeed mounted backward on the pickup. The interior of the vehicle had been cleaned, but investigators found small spots of blood in the truck, including a smear on the inside of the driver's door. Detectives arrested Zeiger and held him at the state jail on $75,000 bail. In an era before DNA analysis, lab technicians tentatively matched the blood smear in Zeiger's truck to ZZ Mason's blood type. Due to the excessive press coverage and public outcry over the murders of Beth Van Zanten, Shirley Ann Jones, and ZZ Mason, the judge ruled an impartial jury could not be found in Anchorage for the Zeiger trial, and he moved the proceedings to Kodiak, a town on an island 250 miles or 402 kilometers southwest of Anchorage. Concerned about the influence of news coverage surrounding the trial, the judge ordered the jurors sequestered in a hotel where they could be isolated from news reports. Zeiger's lawyer, John Larson, admitted that on the day Zizi disappeared, Zeiger picked up a young woman and drove her around in his truck. But he claimed Zeiger dropped off the woman a while later. Larson said Zeiger was unsure whether the woman was Zizi Mason. Analysts determined the blood on the door of Zeiger's truck was human, but they could not definitively match it to Zizi. An expert testified the other bloodstains found in the vehicle belonged either to a human or a high primate, but he could not determine the blood type nor the sex of the donor. He also could not testify to how long the blood had been in the truck. An FBI lab technician testified Zeiger's tires were similar to the casts made from the treads left in the sand pit, but he wasn't certain the tires on Zeiger's truck made the tracks in the sand. Zeiger's boss, Michael Beaver, retracted his statement about Zeiger washing his truck in Campbell Creek on the day of the murder. Despite a large amount of circumstantial evidence, nothing directly tied Zeiger to Zizi's murder. The defense put three witnesses on the stand who claimed they saw Zizi alive and well several hours after she reportedly climbed into Zeiger's truck. 
Finally, Zeiger himself took the stand and calmly denied harming Zizi Mason. The jury deliberated six hours and returned a verdict of not guilty on all counts. One juror said Zeiger might be guilty, but she and the other jurors did not feel the prosecution proved its case. After the jury acquitted Zeiger, he returned to his job at Arctic Pipelines, but he failed to stay out of trouble, and the Alaska State Troopers and Anchorage Police kept a close eye on him, knowing he would kill again. Zeiger aspired to join the Brothers Motorcycle Gang. In Anchorage, the Brothers had recently merged with the Hells Angels in Alaska. Zeiger hoped to gain admittance to the inner circle of the group, but with his explosive temper and violent tendencies, there was little chance he would ever be anything other than a probationary member. The brothers yearned to get involved in the lucrative business of strip clubs and massage parlors in the Anchorage area. These types of clubs blossomed after work began on the Trans-Alaska oil pipeline, flooding the state with an abundance of young, well-paid men. The motorcycle gang thought they could siphon off some of the profits and perhaps even control the flow of dancers into the state. Gang members contacted club owners and demanded the owners pay them protection money. Jimmy Sumter was one of the club owners the motorcycle gang approached. Sumter owned two clubs. One was a Sportsman II in Muldoon, and the other was a larger club called the Kit Kat Club a few miles out the old Seward Highway from Anchorage. Sumter turned down the gang's offer of protection and told them he had no desire to deal with them. A short while later, someone broke into Sumter's house, murdered his wife Marguerite and his stepson Richard Merck, and then set the house on fire. A grieving and enraged Jimmy Sumter vowed to find the man or men who had killed his wife and stepson. And according to a rumor, Sumter put the word out on the street he wanted the killer or killers dispatched as soon as possible. Sumter might have suspected members of the Brothers' motorcycle gang, but some members of the gang thought they knew who had murdered Marguerite Sumter and Richard Merck. The police had no doubt who had committed the murders and arson. Although Zeiger had been acquitted for the murder of Z.Z. Mason, the Alaska State Troopers believed Zeiger was a vicious killer who would soon murder again. Major Walter Gilmore ordered his troopers to keep an eye on Zeiger. On the evening of November 25, 1973, Trooper Myers called Major Gilmore and told him he was on the way to see a movie with his wife when he spotted Zeiger driving an unfamiliar truck. Myers quickly wrote down the license plate number of the vehicle. A few hours later, not far from where Myers had seen Zeiger, someone murdered Marguerite Sumter and her son and set the Sumter house on fire. While interviewing neighbors, police questioned a woman who lived across the street from the Sumters. She told detectives she'd been up late on the night of the murders and saw a strange truck parked along the road in front of the Sumter's house. The truck made her nervous, so she wrote down the license number. The number she recorded matched the plate on the pickup Myers had seen Zeiger driving a few hours earlier. 
police knew Gary Zeiger shot Marguerite Sumter and her son, but they were not sure why. The killer stole $20,000 cash and jewelry from the Sumter house, so robbery appeared to be the most apparent motive. Zeiger was also trying to gain admittance to the inner circle of the brothers' motorcycle gang, so perhaps the murders were an effort to impress others in the gang. Zeiger had recently been convicted of stealing dynamite in Cordova, and the high-priced attorney he hoped to hire for his appeal demanded a $10,000 retainer before he would handle Zeiger's case. Zeiger did not have $10,000, so investigators believed he broke into the Sumter's house to steal the cash. It was no secret Sumter kept large sums of money in his home. No matter why Zeiger broke into the Sumter's house and killed his wife and stepson, Zeiger made a big mistake crossing the players in the hardened Anchorage underworld. Within a matter of hours, motorists discovered Zeiger's body near Potter's Marsh along the Seward Highway. A shotgun blast to the chest had ended his life. After Zeiger's death, police solved another Anchorage mystery involving Zeiger. On the evening of August 22, 1973, an Anchorage resident named Johnny Rich disappeared. Rich had recently purchased Cindy's Massage Studio in Anchorage, and Wesley Ladd felt he had been double-crossed in the deal. Ladd believed he owned a portion of Cindy's, but Rich did not agree with his assertion. When Rich's 16-year-old pregnant wife and his 15-year-old daughter contacted authorities to report him missing, police immediately suspected Ladd in his disappearance. With no evidence, though, they had no cause to arrest Ladd. A few months after Zeiger's murder, police arrested a heroin addict named Benny Ramey for receiving and selling stolen property. Ramey told police he knew where Johnny Rich was buried. He proceeded to confess that Wesley Ladd had hired him and Gary Zeiger to kidnap Rich. They then drove Rich to a remote cabin where Ladd attempted to force Rich to sign over Cindy's massage studio and his other properties to Ladd's attorney. When Rich refused to sign, his captors put a clamp on his testicles and squeezed until he autographed the documents. Ladd was prepared to release Rich, but Zeiger shot Rich in the chest. The shot did not kill Rich, so Ladd shot him in the heart, and the men buried Rich near an abandoned coal mine. Authorities don't know how many people Gary Zeiger killed, but some believe he murdered at least a dozen individuals. Did he murder Beth Van Zanten? police found wire similar to the wire used to bind Beth's wrists in Zeiger's house, but a definitive match could not be made. A composite sketch made by witnesses who claim they saw Beth with a man on the night she disappeared resembles Zeiger, but the observations were tenuous. One of the most shocking details about Zeiger and his reign of terror in Anchorage is when he was found dead near the Seward Highway with a shotgun blast to his chest, Gary Zeiger was only 20 years old. 
Thank you for listening. And please check the show notes to find references for this podcast. I am an author, and I write Alaska Wilderness Mysteries. I've written four novels set in the wilderness of Kodiak Island. I also write a monthly newsletter about murder and mystery in Alaska. Check the show notes for more information on my novels and my newsletter. I'll be back soon with the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.